you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, if you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 1021. 1021. One commentator tells us the story of a, of a group of first graders who had completed a tour of a hospital and the nurse who had directed them uh, asked them if they had any questions. And immediately one of the hands went up from a, a young boy and he asked, how, how come the people who work here always wash their hands? After the laughter had subsided, the nurse gave a wise answer. They are always washing their hands for two reasons. First, they love health, and second, they hate germs. Love health and hate germs. This is pre-COVID too, right? Love health and hate germs. Love and hate actually can go together in some instances. As we come to John chapter 2, John already had written about the exercise of love, and now he warns about the wrong kind of love, or what Warren Wearsby calls a love that God hates. If you have your copy of God's Word, follow along as I begin reading in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Now, God, as we prepare to hear your word, would you help us to accept your word? Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing me, we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, so far in chapter two, we have looked at two tests of assurance. The first being a moral test, that being obedience to God's commands, and the second being a social test, that being to love one another. These tests were given by John not to increase, as one um, theologian says, not to increase the Christian's doubts. So the tests aren't there to, to make us doubt. The tests are there to strengthen our insurance. As John began this next section that we just read, he interrupts the tests. And we'll come back to another test again. But he interrupts these tests to offer to these Christians a commendation, an encouragement, a recognition, and a command. And the command comes with a warning. Well, first, the, the commendation are in verses we see it in verses 12 through 14. Though John had written to those who said one thing and did another, 
Remember, he, he said that if, if you say this, but you do this, you're actually lying. He wrote a lot about that to, to certain people. Clearly, though, John thinks that his readers and believes his readers were Christians. In verses 12 through 14, John explains the purpose of his writing in light of their spiritual condition, in light of who they were spiritually speaking. We can see John use several words to describe or identify his readers. We see children, we see fathers, and we see young men. Now, theologians uh, disagree on exactly what these designations may mean. But what we can know is this, is that when John says little children or, or dear children, this is a reference that John uses elsewhere. He uses it later in chapter 2. He uses it also in earlier in chapter 2 and in chapter 5. When he says little children, he's not necessarily referring, or he's not referring to one who is young of age, not even necessarily one who is spiritually young of age, as in childish in their faith, but rather this is a, an identification as a child of God. It's a term to say little children, little children of God. This way we can understand that John was using this term to identify all those who believe in Christ, which would follow because in verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The reason that he's writing to these Christians is to assure them that their sins are forgiven. Forgiveness of sins is a hallmark of Christianity. It is necessary, and it is one of the, 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 the realities of being a Christian. It's no small matter. The, the children of God can know, you can know this this morning, that your sins are forgiven, that you are pardoned, that you are released from the penalty of your sin. That's an amazing, an amazing truth. And John writes to these little children, to these Christians, in, in part to you and me, to say, your sins are forgiven. And they're forgiven for his name's sake, is what the rest of that statement says. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25 says it this way, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake. This is the Lord speaking. I blot them out for, for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It is for, for the sake of, of God's name. It's because of God. It's because of Jesus, specifically, his name, who he is, that there is even forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without Jesus. Forgiveness is not because of anything that we have done, but only what he has done for us. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. James Montgomery Boyce writes, John wrote to these little children not because they were not saved, but because they were saved. He's writing to them to tell them, I'm writing because your sins are forgiven. I'm addressing you as a Christian because your sins are forgiven. And that's not all. In the end of verse 13, we, we read, I write to you children because you know the Father. Not only is he writing to them because they have forgiveness, but secondly, because they know the Father. These are two hallmarks of being a Christian, is knowing that your sins are forgiven and knowing God as Father. 
One writer says the key mark of maturity in this context is knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. Because you know the Father. God is knowable. You can know God. This speaks to the personal nature of God. Christians are not only known by God, but through Christ can know God. That's an amazing thing to consider. That this infinite, eternal being, divine being, can be known through Christ by his people. We can know God personally. And John is writing to Christians because their sins are forgiven and because they know the Father. Well, from here, John seems to identify two groups, fathers and young men. First, he addresses fathers in the beginning of verse 13. He says, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And if you jump down to the beginning of verse 14, he repeats himself. It says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, fathers here seems to indicate those who are spiritually mature, not those who are necessarily of an older age. There's a difference. John was identifying those who had, had an amount of spiritual experience that resulted in knowing this eternal God who we understand, who is from the beginning, eternality. There is a profound difference, we know, between knowing about God and knowing God. There, there are plenty of people who know about God. There are plenty of people who might even say that they believe that there is a God. But that is not the same thing as knowing God. To know God is to have experienced God, to have a relationship with God. Back to what John has already said, to know him as Father. And I wonder this morning, do you know him? Do you know God? If you don't, here's the good news. You can. He is accessible. He is a God who, who is knowable and glad to be known. But there's only one way. It is through the Son. It begins as we come to God in repentance and faith in Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That God so loved the world that he gave his Son. That, that we might know God. That we might have eternal life. That we might understand him to be our Father. Well, the second group comes in the middle of verse 13. John says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Then look to the end of verse 14. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, when we say young men here, this is not to the exclusion of women. That's not the point. John's point is that they were spiritually young. If the fathers were spiritually mature, now here the younger are spiritually immature. And yet, John gives them a commendation that they are strong. Strong. Strength, we know, is a natural characteristic of youth, right? Something that we wish would remain, 
right? Many of us, as, as we lose our strength, we wish that we could continue to be strong. But this reference is not about physical strength. John is not calling these people strong physically. He's referring to them strong spiritually. And that becomes clear in the next phrase in verse 14 when he says, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. The word of God abides in you. Spiritually speaking, these young men were spiritually strong because the word of God was abiding in them. Now, many years ago, and this might surprise some of you, I actually lifted weights for a short period of time. <laughs> short period of time. And in that period of time, I actually was relatively strong, relatively speaking. Um, and the reason was, is because three times a week, I worked with weights. I worked out. And when you work out with weights, you get physically stronger. That's how that works. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes months of, of work. And quite frankly, when I was doing it, I was frustrated that it wasn't happening sooner. Why, why am I not getting stronger more quickly? But it takes time. The same is true as we think about the spiritual strength. As we work out with the word, as we spend time with the word, as, we, as the word abides in us, we become spiritually strong. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen just because you're older. It happens when we, uh, when we come to the word. Isaiah chapter 19, verse nine, 119, verse 9. Psalm chapter 119, verse 9 says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? How? How can a young man keep his way pure? You might say, how can an old man keep his way pure? How can anybody keep his way pure? What's the answer? By guarding it, that's his way, according to your word. It's in the power of the word. It's abiding in the word that gives us strength. Well, finally, John says here to the young men that the outcome of the one who is strong in the word is what? To overcome the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. It is defeat or victory over the devil. You have overcome the evil one. David Allen writes, the best way to defeat the devil is with the sword of the Lord. He continues, the secret to spiritual growth and strength is knowledge and practice of the word of God. And this is what the Bible affirms to us. In, Isaiah, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, talking about the armor of God, it's the sword of the spirits. When we look at Jesus, how he handled the temptation in the wilderness, what did he do? He went to the word, and the word strengthened him. And ignorance of the word, the word of God, is a weakness for the Christian, and therefore an opportunity for the evil one. The reason some of us are not strong spiritually is because we are not in the word. John's encouragement to these young men is that they are strong because the word of God abides in them. How does the word of God abide in you? You've got to get the word of God in you. Be on guard and be in the word. Well, verses 12 through 14, John is telling Christians who they are. Right? This is what I'm, you're forgiven. You, you know God. You, you know the Father. 
You're strong. The word of God abides in you. You've overcome the, the, the evil one. This is all commendation. This is all who they are. And then he moves to verses 15 through 17. He tells Christians how they are to live because that's true. So if that's true about you, then this is how you live. This is how it looks. And he gives them a command in verse 15. And it says this, read along with or follow along with me. Do not love the world or the things in the world. There's the command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Christians are called to love, to love God and to love others and also to not love the world. To love the world is again, as Wearsby says, a love that God hates. What is this world that John refers to? Do not love the world. Well, as you read through the Bible, world is used multiple, multiple different ways. One way that the, the world is used is referring to the universe, right? That God made the world, that, that, that all of it, right? We could understand the world to be that. The second way we see the world used is meaning Mankind, or the, the collection of the human race, for God so loved the world. Doesn't necessarily mean that God loved the globe or the universe. He loved the people. He loved the collective human race. But clearly, those two definitions would not come close to, to understanding do not love the world. For God certainly loves the universe, and God certainly loves the collective human race, and we ought to as well in both cases. So that can't be it. Well, what might it be? It would be this, that the world is the world system which opposes God. The world system is, is its values, its pleasures, its aspirations, its principles, its practices. It's the organized, invisible, evil system opposed to God and Christ, which is under the authority of Satan whose 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, is the God of this world. This is the world that we are not to love. One Bible translation, translates verse 15, do not set your heart on the godless world and anything in it. We are not to love the world or the things in the world. Loving the world and loving the things in the world is not necessarily or merely a matter of materialism. It's not talking about loving specific things necessarily. It's talking about an attitude or the heart behind our loves. It's a matter of the heart. And this occurs just like we are strengthened gradually, we love the world gradually. The love of the world takes root in two ways. One is we, as we embrace the world. James chapter four, verse four says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of, of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Loving the world and things of the world first takes place, or in the world, first takes place as we embrace the world. We, we grow a friendship with the world. And we, again, what do we mean? We're talking about the values and the principles and the practices of the world in contrast to God. So we ask, what are you embracing today? 
What values, what principles, what worldview, what ideas are you embracing today? But not only embracing it, participating is the second. Not only do, 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 does worldly, worldliness mean that we embrace the world, but then we participate in it. We, we do what the world does. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, keep oneself unstained from the world or unspotted from the world. But you don't participate in the way of the world. You might say, I'm, not, I'm still not quite sure I understand how this looks. Well, there's a story in the Old Testament about a man named Lot. A man named Lot who was the nephew of Abraham. And Abraham brought him with him as he left uh, Canaan and he, he, he went, uh, or left Haran and he left Ur and he went into uh, the promised land, towards the promised land. And he looked uh, when they were there and, and they were looking at the land and Abraham said, you can have whatever you want and I'll take what, what, what's left. And Lot looked and he saw towards Sodom. Uh, two towns that we understand, two places called Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And saw, Lot saw that he looked, the scripture tells us, he looked towards Sodom. And not only did he look towards Sodom, but, but then he chose it and he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And soon after, he moved into Sodom. And soon after, he was captured with Sodom. And soon after, he was saved from Sodom by fire. You might remember that story. As fire and brimstone hailed down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family were led out by angels. Lot lost everything, including his eternal reward, because he loved the world. And I ask, are you in danger of loving the world this morning? What we love, we commit our time to. We commit our resources to. We commit our money and our energy to. Again, Warren Wearsby writes, anything in the Christian's life that causes him to lose his enjoyment for the Father's love or his desire to do the Father's will is worldly and must be avoided. But we may wonder, how can we know if we love the world? How can we know? It's not always that easy to understand, is it? It's not always that easy to spot because the truth is that we live in the world. We're around it all the time. In some ways, it's the air that we breathe. But, but here are four questions, somewhat of a diagnostic questions uh, in order to, to think through this. This is taken from some of the work by theologian David Allen. Do you love the world? Number one, does any object cause you to exclude serious reflection on the things of God? Is there any object that, that takes your attention, your reflection away from the things of God? Secondly, is most of your conversation dominated by the things of this world? And again, by things of this world, we mean what the world values, its principles, its practices. Number three, are you unwilling to part with whatever, fill the blank, when need be, or unwilling to give it up for God's purposes. If there's something in your life that you would refuse to give up, you might have a problem. Number four, do you pursue 
the things of the world with greater zeal than serving God? If you answer yes to these questions, then you are in danger of loving the world. You're in danger of, of doing the very thing here that God is calling us not to do. Loving the world which is in conflict with loving God. Really, we could just ask it this way. Is there anything in your life of greater importance to you than God? Than knowing God? Than obeying God? Than following God? And if there is, then the love of the world may have a, a hold on you. And here's the good news. That even as we sit here this morning, we can confess that to the Lord and be forgiven. It doesn't have to be like that. We don't, we don't have to be identified like that. We don't have to continue in that. Even if it's true today, it does not have to be true tomorrow. Well, John doesn't just say, don't love the world. Sometimes parents say, just don't do that. Why? Because I said so, right? Uh, John doesn't do that here. He actually goes on and he gives two reasons for not loving the world. And the first reason is the incompatibility of loving God. Look at it in the rest of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Meaning loving the world and loving God cannot go hand in hand. They cannot be together. They are incompatible. When we love the world, we show that the love of the Father is not in us, meaning it does not rule us, that something else is ruling us. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, no one can serve two masters. You'll either love the one or hate the other. He will be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. In the same way, we could say you cannot love the world and love God. They're incompatible. The illustration is given to say, imagine a, a couple getting married. And the spouse says to the other spouse, I'll get married, but I just want you to know I'm going to love this other person too. Like, I don't think you understand what marriage is. Right? The marriage is, is the, the leaving of, of everyone else and cleaving to one, to loving one person. And here, in a, in a similar way, we're saying to God, okay, yeah, I love God, but I love the world too. And that doesn't work. That's incompatible with the love of God. Verse 16 tells us why this love for the world is incompatible. It says, for or because all that is in the world, all that is in the world. And then he gives these three broad categories. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. All that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. So what is the world? What's in the world? What are the things of loving the things in the world? The desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, first, the desires of the flesh. Some of your Bibles say the lust of the flesh, which feels a little grittier to me. The lust of the flesh is all inordinate or excessive, godless desires. Not just particularly gross sins that we might minimize it to. This means activity, which includes but not, as limited, but not limited to sexual desire. All activity which is incompatible with God. 
and contrary to his will. They say, well, okay, what? No, if the desire is contrary to God's will, then that is a desire of the flesh. Desire by itself is not wrong, but desire, excessive, godless desire is wrong. This is what one writer calls a life dominated by the senses. If we had time, we'd go to Galatians chapter 5, and we would see the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. What does this actually look like? What does it actually look like when you live by the desires of the flesh? If you want to look at that for yourself, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 24, will give you a list of what it looks like to live by the, the flesh or to live in the Spirit. Secondly, the desire of the eyes. The desire of the eyes is covetousness. It's a desire to keep up with the world's values. If the lust of the flesh is about the physical gratification, then the lust of the eyes is about the mental pleasure, what you think about. When you see something, then you crave that thing, and you have to have it. That's the desire of the eyes. We see this again in another story in the Old Testament with King David. And King David is at home instead of out to war like he was supposed to be. He's on his roof walking and he sees a woman taking a bath. And instead of looking away, instead of walking away and doing the right thing, the, the text tells us that he kept on looking. He beheld her, he gazed upon her, and he wanted her, and he called for her. And even after knowing who she was, he still called for her and he took her. What is that? That's the desire of the eyes and the desire of the flesh, but it is seeing something, craving it, and having to have it. Now, our sins might not be as grievous as David's. But the desire of the eyes is to, to, a desire to keep up with the world's values, to have what the world has. Thirdly, the pride of life. This is said to be an arrogant spirit of self-sufficiency. It's material, material possessions, of course, are involved here. James Montgomery Boyce writes, it's boasting of what we have and what we do. This is vain glory. It's puffing ourselves up. The pride of life. Look at me. All of these fallen desires are, according to John, not from the Father, but from the world. And the world system is at odds with God, right? It's at odds with God. It's at odds with God's people, which is nothing new. It's as old as the garden. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes to Eve in the form of a serpent and he tempts her. He tempts her to break a command that God had given to her, the only command that God had given to her and to Adam, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And as Satan tempted her, we see the same three desires in verse 16 of 1 John 2, here in, or there, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, good for food, that's the desire of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that's the desire of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that's the desire or the pride of life. Right? The same three temptations, the same three ways that the world lures us away. And then we know what happens next, don't we? Eve gives in. 
She eats the fruit. She gives it to Adam, and he eats the fruits. And then they live happily ever after. No, no, they didn't. No, their desire actually did not, was not fulfilled at all. Like, at all, which is what sin does. It never satisfies. The desire, the promise was left unfulfilled. Instead of delighting, instead of that food being good, instead of all the things that they wished, that day they died. They died spiritually that day. What do we learn? The love of the world is incompatible with loving God. And here, Adam and Eve suffered the consequences for their sin, for their love of the world, most significantly being their separation from God. A consequence that has affected the world even today. It affected you and me as we are born in our sins. Sin has corrupted everything. And brothers and sisters, life is choices. You have a choice. You make choices. Do you love the world or will you love God? And we can make all the choices, but we cannot determine the consequences. Well, Satan didn't stop with Eve, did he? As you read through your Bible, Satan was at it time and time again. And later in the Gospels, we read about a time when he took his shot at Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness and Satan tempts Jesus. And what were those temptations? But these same three things, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's the same story. This is how Satan, Satan works. And Jesus endured and he combat, combated those temptations each time. How? With the word. And if Satan took his opportunity with Eve... It took his shot at Jesus. You could know that you're in the crosshairs too. Christian, you're in the crosshairs too. These temptations, these desires are but a mirage. They never deliver what they promise. But this is the world, the evil system that opposes God. Verse 17 closes the section with a second reason for the command the command to not love the world. And what is it? The world is passing away along with its desires. The world is not permanent. It is passing away. It is a sinking ship. And I'm no investment expert, but this is a bad investment. The world is a bad investment. Don't get on the ship. The ship is sinking. You don't get on a sinking ship. You get off a sinking ship. The world is a sinking ship. The system of this world, its values, and its pleasures are temporary, and they are headed for destruction. And John concludes, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is falling apart, but those who do the will of God abide forever, or remain forever, or as one Bible version says, live forever. You want to live forever? Do the will of God. What's the will of God? To do what he's commanded. What is he commanded? To repent and believe. To love God and love people. To not love the world. We might wonder, how could we ever do that? 
The world is luring us in every day. If you don't think it's working on you, if you don't think the world and its system is not at odds with you, you're not paying attention. C.S. Lewis, in his book called The Screwtape Letters, says that the, the, the safest way to hell is, is one of a, a, slow, a, um, a slope with, with no signposts. No, no, nothing to cause any, any concern. No, 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 no sudden changes. Uh, a soft underfooting. Meaning, if, if you don't think anything's wrong, there's something wrong. There's something desperately wrong. And unless we are intentionally being transformed by the word, we will be conformed to the world. That's how it works. Those are your options. There is no other options. One of our children, when we were disciplining them one time, they said, I told them you could do this or you could do that. And they said, I don't like my options. Well, I don't care if you don't like your options. These are the options. These are the options. Be transformed by the word or be conformed by the world. Alexander McLaren writes, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old love, we could say the love of the world, is by the explosive power of a new one, of a new love. Well, how could we, what, what kind of, what, what, what would do that? Turn to your Bible, just one page over to 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, and hear these words. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Our love for the world is broken or dispossessed when we love God when we see that the love of God in Christ is for us, that's what breaks our love for the world. When, when a greater love, a more explosive love comes to play. So as we come to the table this morning, we see this love again. We see it again. We see the, the explosive power of God's love in the life and death of his son for us. Listen, as we take of the bread... We are reminded of his body in which he lived the perfect life that we could not live. And he also died the death that we deserved. That's what we're remembering. And as we drink of the cup, we remember his blood. His blood that poured through his veins and poured out on the cross in order that our sins could be forgiven. This morning, if you know this Jesus... If you have trusted him as your savior, we invite you to participate. But if you do not know him this morning, and by knowing him, listen please, and by knowing him we mean if you've never trusted him as your savior, repenting of your sins, then we would ask for you to not take of these elements this morning. Just let the, let the plate pass, it's okay. Or if you're sitting there today and you have known unconfessed sin in your life, you know that, that you are loving the world and you're unwilling to repent of such sin, then we ask for you to not take of this either. For to do so, according to the Apostle Paul, is to do so, it's to take it in an unworthy manner of which there is consequence. But instead of taking of these elements that, that merely represent the body and the blood of Jesus, we would invite you to receive Jesus himself through repentance and faith. 
But before we go any further, would you pause with me and ask God to search our hearts that we might be led to repentance. Maybe there's sin in our life that we're unaware of that God would open our eyes that we might repent even now. 